Good morning and welcome to Salem Chapel. We're so glad you're joining us today. We know getting connected to a new church can be hard. If you're new to Salem Chapel, or if you've been coming a few weeks and are ready to take your next steps, we would love to make that as easy as possible. There are two ways we can help. First, if you're here in person, stop by the Welcome Center on your way out. Or second, you can visit salemchapel.org hello at any point this week. Once you do either of those options, one of our staff members will follow up with you later this week to help you get connected here at Salem Chapel. Memorial Day weekend is the unofficial start to summer, and we want to kick it off with a party. On Sunday, May 29th, we will be having one combined service at 10 a.m., followed by a family meal here at the church. This will be a great time to have a little fun, meet new people, and start your summer off on a great note. You can find all of the details at salemchapel.org events. You can learn more about these events and everything else happening at Salem Chapel by visiting our website at salemchapel.org. Church, let's stand as we enter into a time of worship together. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm actually going to start reading um, from verse 10, although we're really going to uh, obviously camp out in verses 13 and 14. Paul writes this when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We've unpacked that already in this series. Put on the whole armor of God. The idea there is continually clothed that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Because that is all true, because that is the battle we face, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is where we're going to be this morning. Let's pray first and then we're going to jump right in. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, may we be reminded that we actually do face a spiritual battle. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would uh, reveal to us uh, the truths that you want us to hear as we face this battle. Father, I pray that you would remove the distractions from us and, and allow the Spirit just to speak in this moment. God, that you would transform us, that you would change us. Father, I don't know what some um, may have come in this room experiencing already, but, but God, the battle can, can really rage at, at different intensities. And so, Father, I pray that you would meet each and every person where they're at this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been uh, in this series for now the last couple of weeks called Weapons of Wars. We're looking at the armor of God. And Paul's just going to make it abundantly clear, isn't he? Like, we're in a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle actually is uh, something that occurs in our heart, and it produces some struggles in our life. And we have to understand that, that the enemy, if you're a follower of Christ, cannot steal your salvation. It can't take that away from you. So there has to be another tactic. And the tactic really to, to sideline us is this. I want to deceive. I want to distract. I want to discourage. And I want to divide. And the places that that happens is in our heart. So we have to 
We have to just remind ourselves sometimes that the battles we are facing is a spiritual battle that actually takes place in our heart. You know, as people, it's the way that God created us. He created us in two parts, body and soul. Our physical body, but our soul, which we often call the heart. The, the Bible would often call the heart. And in our heart, it's made up of a couple of pieces. Our mind, so what we think, our emotions, how we feel, and our will, what it is that we do, those volitional choices we make. And so, as we think about what we feel, what we decide, what we do, we're only going to live out physically what we've already decided to do in our hearts. See, the, the breastplate of righteousness is what protects us in the battle, in the places that we are the most vulnerable to attack. Let me give you the big idea, and then what I want to do today is just spend some time unpacking this for us. Here's the big idea. Jesus' righteousness protects my heart to stand righteously in my struggle. So let's just define real quick um, righteousness. See, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about really moral perfection, sinlessness, that there's no sin. So when we talk about righteousness, we're saying that um, what, what Jesus calls us to, the standard is perfection. Any good, anybody in the room willing to go like, yeah, then I'm already in deep weeds, right? We, we all should be saying that because we can put on some errors, but let's be honest, at the end of the day, we, we know we are unrighteous. And Paul's going to actually kind of double click on this point. So if, if any way that you think, man, well, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm actually unrighteous, he says in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. So he doesn't leave any room for us to really have this struggle over whether or not we are righteous. If you believe God's word, man, we're just, we're not righteous. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was perfectly righteous on your behalf. When we talk about the importance of Jesus living a perfectly sinless life, like he did what you could not do. So when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to give you a doctrinal term this morning, we are imputed his righteousness. And that word just means credited, given to us. So in our faith, God looks at you with the imputed righteousness of Jesus as though you have no sin. And that's an important part and aspect of understanding it is our relationship with Jesus Christ. That he did that for you and on your behalf. See, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Talking about Jesus, it says this, For our sake, he made him to, to be sin who knew no sin. There's no sin in Jesus. So that we, here's what we get, might become the righteousness of God. Gray talked about that a little bit when he talked about Romans 8.1, and he talked about the fact that we don't have condemnation. Why can we say that we are not condemned? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, only because of the righteousness that Jesus has given you in his imputed righteousness. Now, before we just lose ourselves in that doctrine, let's just sit for a moment in the implications of what it means that we are made righteous. Sit in it. And you're reconciled to God. 
Like no longer are you separated from God because of his righteousness. That's an incredible thing. It frees us from that condemnation. It brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Even physical death to uh, forever physical life in eternity with Jesus. It restores our relationship to him. But I love this. It also defines our identity. If you ever read the Bible and actually put your yourself in this particular, uh, put, put yourself in these words. But here's some of the things as a follower of Jesus that the Bible calls you. You're a saint. Some of you are going, yeah, ain't no one besides you, Aaron, ever called me a saint. Or beloved. And that you're a beloved child of God. And it keeps us from ever being able to be separated from God. That's what the righteousness of Jesus does for us. So sit in that as we unpack this. Because what we're going to see here in Ephesians 6 is this call for us to stand firm by putting on the armor of God. And that breastplate of righteousness, that is an essential piece of armor that's actually going to give us protection in our spiritual battles. So I want to talk about what the significance of that is and help us understand that a little bit. We're going to have show and tell this morning, if that's okay, so I brought some things with me. I think some of you know, maybe not everyone knows, that I spent quite a few years my previous life, I was a, I was a law enforcement officer, right? And so... Um, I'm very, very familiar with this. Uh, this, is, this is body armor. Some of you call it, um, let me call it bulletproof vest, but it's not fully bulletproof just in case anyone ever told you that. And so there's not a single morning before I left um, for work that the very first thing I did was not put this on. You actually strap this whole thing on and then you put your uniform on underneath it or over it. What was the reason for that? Because it protected what was most vulnerable. And one of the things that I had thought about as I was considering this illustration, the way that I put this on, like, I would have never left the house with this, without this, ever. Matter of fact, it was so drilled into our heads that even when I was in the academy, in lectures, we had to sit in uniform in uh, our body armor. You know why? Just to get used to the fact that we needed to wear it every single day. And you think about that, it's an illustration that helps us understand a little bit about what Paul is talking about when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Because just like us in, in Jewish tradition, when often they talked about the heart, which remember is the emotions, mind, and will, we refer to it usually in this space, don't we? We say my heart hurts. What do we naturally do? We do this. When we talk about our emotions, we often talk about the, the, the pit of our stomach. And so this analogy would have made complete sense because to those who were living in Ephesus at this time, they would, have, they would have understood when the Roman soldiers were walking around with this breastplate, which is actually very similar to a modern-day piece of body armor, what it is that, they, that he was trying to get across. Matter of fact, for the Roman soldier, the nickname for their breastplate was actually called the heart protector. And it kept them safe as they fought a battle. So we talked about Jesus' righteousness here a little bit this morning already. I want to ask this question. How does it make a bit of difference in my everyday life? Well, I want to give you this phrase. It protects the places in my heart where I'm prone to experience attacks that undermine what I believe about Jesus' righteousness for me. 
See, that's where the battle takes place. The battle for the believer is this battle that the enemy wants to deceive, distract, discourage, and divide you by creating opportunities for you not to believe in the righteousness that you now already have. And it's out of that that we'll live unrighteously. So what do we do? By living into our imputed righteousness, what Jesus has already given us in the gospel, then we're able to live out what we call practical righteousness, right? That's, those, that's obedience, the way that we walk in obedience. We're able to live that out because we now have been made righteous. It's how we live in response to the gospel. So when we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, especially in this text, and we understand, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to part and parcel the Greek this morning, but here's what I want you to understand. It's not predominantly talking about imputed righteousness. It's talking about practical righteousness, the way that we live it out, and saying the way that we live that out is actually the protection we need. But you can't have practical if first you don't have imputed righteousness, Until Jesus has done that for you, you're never going to live in response to the gospel in any different way. There's not. So let's look at some of the ways that this actually occurs for us. Because, see, when I stand righteously, how I live out the gospel, because of Jesus' righteousness, imputed righteousness for me, it does three things for my heart. And that's what I want us to, that's what I want us to talk about a little bit today. Remember, what's your heart? Mind, emotions, will, right? Number one, here's what it does. It protects what I think. It protects my mind. You know, what we think affects what we do. And what we, what we do is first conceives in our minds. And the way that we tend to live as humans is based on how we think we are doing. That's why we're all creatures of comparison. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we compare everything. So go to dinner with uh, four or five other friends. What happens when the, the waiter or waitress brings the meal and sets it down? What does everybody do? Oh, look what you got. Oh, look. And we make an evaluation, we make a comparison on whether or not we got a good end of the deal. Like some of us go, oh man, I'm glad I ordered what I got because that looks terrible. And other times... We've experienced this great amount of FOMO, right? This fear of missing out. Like, oh man, I should have ordered that, but I ordered this. Now my meal's gonna stink. What are we doing? We're, we're, we're just comparison. We're just comparing. We do that with everything. We do it with our homes, our jobs. We do it with our incomes, our kids, our marriages. I mean, we do it with our physical appearance. We are always comparing. But the most dangerous comparison we can make is when we actually start to think that our righteousness is also now achieved by comparing ourselves to other people. That's where it's dangerous. Because comparison is one of the tactics that the enemy uses to deceive, distract, discourage, and divide you. You know why? Because it keeps you walking with joy and dependency on the Lord. Not only that, it destroys the relationships that you have around you. And if we're always comparing ourselves to other people, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be around those kind of people all the time. Someone's always better than I am. So let's ask this question now. How is it that our thoughts deceive, distract, discourage, and divide in my mind? Well, when I look to other people, I can view God as more pleased with me sometimes because I perform better. It's dangerous. It's 
called self-righteousness. Thinking that we're better than somebody else. And we might not say it out loud, but in our hearts we believe it a lot of times. And that's why self-righteousness is so deceptive. You know, it's, it's such a big deal in, in understanding this battle that goes on our heart and before you come to Christ, why it is that it can keep us from coming to faith. So Jesus in Luke 18 gives us this parable with the Pharisee and the tax collector. You don't need to turn there, but let me just highlight a couple of things by reading some of this. So Jesus gives this story and he says, now he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. So tax collector being viewed as the lowest of the low. The Pharisee, right, the one who followed all the law, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. How often do we think the same thing? I'm not an extortioner, unjust, adulterer, or I'm not even like this tax collector. But he doesn't just, like, stop there. Oh, no, he goes on and he wants to make sure he talks about the righteousness that he does have. Like, man, I fast twice a week. You ain't got that on me. I give tithes of all that I get. But then the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, here's what I really want to draw your attention to in that. It's a couple of things. Jesus, when he starts this, he says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. But then what did they do relationally? They treated others with contempt. And it's that way that we look down on other people. You know what our self-righteousness can look like sometimes? We can do the exact same thing. We can compare our spiritual accomplishments. And this is why I'm better. We compare political views. How often do we look at other people and believe that we are better than they are because of the differing political views that we have. Or church denominations. You know why we have so many denominations? Because one thinks they're better than other. Now, I'm not talking about the theological differences which we need to understand, but sometimes we just think that we're better. Our education, our school grades, our income, I said it earlier, our appearance, you name it. And we start to think that, man, these are all the ways that... I just perform better. What's the point? Well, when other people are our standard of righteousness, then we don't need Jesus. We don't need the righteousness that he actually gives us. And then we just become hypocrites and we become judgmental. And we believe that we are better. And so what we do is we start to judge other people's motivations and we judge their actions based on my standards. Like, ah, they do this or that. So man, I'm Glad that's not me. Man, it's wicked and sinful, and you know why? Because here's how you'll live. You'll live to make much of you and little of Jesus, oblivious to the fact that it's a train wreck in your heart and all of the relationships that you're destroying in the process of that. I wanted to really, like, drive this home because I think in in this point, sometimes... There can be a tendency for us to not see this. That's why it's actually a tactic of the enemy, deceptive. So you know what I'm going to do? I, like, I wrestled this week whether or not to use this illustration, um, but I'm going to because it's just part of my story. So some of you know, some of you don't know, about 14 years ago, I was a little bit bigger guy than I am now. 
Yes, let's all stop and look at the picture for a moment. We were skiing, Jen and I were skiing in uh, Breckenridge, Colorado, so I don't normally have a face that red. That was just, I must have been on the slopes, I don't know what that was. Um, you know, I think for a lot of good reasons, I decided that, man, I'm going to change the way that I look and change the way that I live. And I think there were some good motivations in there, but you want to know one of the main like reasons that I really did that? I told you, I mean, I just put myself out there this morning. It's because there was a guy, a friend, a, a guy who would just very publicly, like in church, make fun of me for the way that I looked. You can only do that so many years before you just get, like, really tired of being made fun of. So I just took it on myself, and I said, yeah, I'll show you. So two and a half years and 130 pounds. Now, before you go, yay, like I know that there's some doctors, there's some doctors in the, you're probably thinking to yourself, like, well, getting healthy, that's a good thing, Aaron, it is. A couple years after, you know, about four years after that picture was taken, that relationship entered a, peri entered a period of conflict. It was pretty deepful, deep and hurtful to me. And um, the guy that was in that conflict with me, who I just shared with you and made fun of me, was about the size that I was. So I'm not sure why we were comparing one another back then. Nonetheless, in the middle of that conflict, there was some deep hurt that came into my own life and my own family's life. And here's the part that I didn't know if I wanted to share with you, but it works for self-righteousness. Man, what I would do is just think in my mind and say to other people, well, look, at least I don't look like him. At least I've got that under control. At least I'm better than that. See, that's what self-righteousness looks like in the everyday. Because I didn't believe in that moment that Jesus was enough for me. I believed that what was going to make me enough was to just posture my heart in such a way that I believed I was better than him. I don't know maybe even how God is speaking to you right now in that moment, but there's a thousand different ways that we live out the exact same way of self-righteousness. Sometimes we just think that we're better, but a lot of times there's some of us who also compare. We compare ourselves to other people who we think are just doing so much better than we are. It leads to just a posture of self-loathing where we're never good enough. And then I begin to feel like my relationship with God is something that I'm just a constant failure at. What it does is it leads us to constantly looking for affirmation from other people. The other person over here becomes my source of affirmation to get hope and joy. But that, that relationally is a weight that other people can't carry. Because if they have to be your hope and your joy and carry that weight, they want to avoid you. Like, I know I'm now middle-aged, and so I'm not even up with all of the texting. And, you know, I, well, I am up with texting. That was not what I meant to say. But um, <laughs> this idea, I was watching a movie last night talking about getting ghosted or something like that, right? When people, you wonder why people ghost you sometimes? Could be because the weight that you place on them is more than they were meant to, to bear. 
That's that person who needs constantly affirm that they're good enough, that they're good enough in their school and jobs and marriages and as parents. It's the guy or woman who subtly just fishes for compliments. You've all met one of those, right? Let me just fish underhandedly for compliments in some way. But under the weight of criticism, they're just crushed. And what that does is it just produces this internal weight in our souls that keeps us living for ourselves even while we claim externally, man, I want to live for Jesus but I'm always living for myself. Here's the lie we believe in that, that comparing ourselves to other people will provide what my heart actually longs for the most. But then what does Jesus say about that? And he says, righteousness has one standard. We cannot and have never met it, ever. We need righteousness that's actually outside of us. So in Christ, as a follower of Jesus, we have been given all the righteousness that we will ever need or possess. So when Jesus, that's why I love some of those verses that, that even Gray talked about, there's no now, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus declares you are righteous, none of your other searching in any of your life, in any of your relationships, are, already, are gonna ever provide for you what you already have in Jesus. Never. So where's the battle in your heart? What is it the enemy is trying to, to do in that deceive, distract? What's a battle in your heart for belief? Believe in the righteousness that I possess in Christ or the righteousness that I constantly need to obtain? It's the battle for belief. Number two, it also protects what I feel in my emotions. Not just what I think, but what I feel. Man, because our emotions... Like to have emotions is, is to be alive. It, to feel in some way is human. I mean, when we express emotions, that is, that is one of the ways that we image and relate and experience God. And our emotions are created by God and they're, they're good. Matter of fact, in creation, they were expressed perfectly. Genesis 2.25 says this about Adam and Eve, that they were unashamed. They experienced shame. They were perfectly relating to God and others. And I, I can't imagine what that is. I want us to just think for a moment. Like, no marriage troubles. Well, not at least then. First thing that happened was marriage troubles the minute that they sinned. Perfectly walking with Jesus. But our emotions now are impacted by sin. So just as our sin separates us from God and causes physical and spiritual death, it distorts our emotions. And no longer sometimes our emotions align with what's true. I'll ask this question. How do our emotions deceive, distract, discourage, and divide us? Let me just give you a couple of examples because I want you to think about fear. Fear can be helpful. Tells us what's dangerous. Like, if we weren't afraid, we'd probably walk into some stupid things. That's why I do not get on roller coasters, because fear tells me that's an idiotic thing to do. <laughs> I know some of you love those things, but I find that to be an anxiety-producing experience that I don't actually need to step into. So, God bless you. But fear can also strangle us when we perceive some threats that are anchored in some sort of truth. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced, they experienced God now as a threat. They didn't run to him. They ran from him. Man, think that they could hide. 
And for every one of us, we can be afraid of something to the place that we, listen to me, no longer trust God. Some of us, maybe it's the fear of the pandemic, that it's just beyond God's control, and now we're afraid in some way to re-enter, to re-engage with people. For some, it may be the fear that my marriage is just hopeless or that our kids are going to rebel. And what we do is we live in this constant posture of fear that makes us afraid to confront sin and set boundaries, require some responsibility in our relationships. Or uh, as, as culture has radically shifted away from any idea that biblical authority and relevancy are, are, are true, we may fear speaking up. We may fear speaking um, what we believe. Like people need to hear the good news of the gospel, but our fear tells us that that's something that's too scary to do. See, when fear lies to us, we believe that the things that we are afraid of have a greater authority than the Lord that we say that we trust. It's ultimately what's happening in that moment. A couple of more just that I, I think is helpful. Sorrow. Sorrow in a sinful world is a reality. We live in a broken place. There are heart-wrenching times. There is overwhelming sadness. And maybe you've experienced some of that. Maybe you've experienced loss in some way. Relationships or deaths or who knows what that may look like for you. But we've all experienced it. When I say the word sorrow, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But we may live out of that sorrow with absolute hopelessness. Wondering, man, I, I wonder if things are ever going to change. I wonder how I'm ever going to get over this death. I wonder if I can ever trust anybody again because of this betrayal. I don't know how joy is ever going to be possible again. But then sorrow can lie to us because what it does is it keeps us in this place where we're not living in the present moment. We're not pursuing the Lord in anything because we're just tied to the past, believing that that has to define us. Man, a lot I could unpack there. We just don't have time. We're anger. One more. I mean, anger is not always wrong. We should be angry sometimes at, at sin and injustice. Man, I hope we look at the wickedness of our world, and I hope there's a righteous anger that starts to swell up in us. But I hope that that also is an empathy and a sympathy that, that just, it's a picture of the rebellion against God and the reason we need Jesus. And yet, when we think about anger, it can control us. Think about relationships. Or anger controls us to a place where we sink and sit in our bitterness, where we blame, we begin to blame God and other people for our circumstances. Anger can hold on to us for years. Like bitterness, one of, the, one of the pictures of bitterness is anger that's just gone on for an extended period of time. So what happens in our life when our emotions aren't aligned with what's necessarily true? We can, we can live to control every situation and every person around us. Or we begin to justify our own sinfulness because we don't believe that God's justice is enough. We look at the wickedness that happens and, and man, we're like, man, if, if God was just, like he would do something about that. Or I have a, you know, I have a spouse that's rebelled and sinned against me in some way. And like I want, I want God's justice to be brought in that situation. And so we get frustrated sometimes. And we begin to imagine ways that we can get revenge. Have you ever been there? 
Have you ever been hurt to a place where in your mind you start to consider, like, man, I wish some bad things would happen to them? Oh, come on, don't look at me like deer in the headlights. I'm not the only one. You've been there. Been to that place where that has been true. Like, you just start to imagine, oh, yeah, like, they're going to get their just due. You start to blame shift, start to lash out at other people. Sometimes we reject God just in the way that we live. Believing that we are actually are like better captains of our own little kingdom because clearly Jesus is not, otherwise he would take care of that problem. And that's a way that the enemy wants to, 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 for you to dismiss the truth of God's word, to abandon what you believe, to, to, to allow our emotions to control us in such a way that, that what we are saying is that what I'm feeling is always true. Now, I don't know where you are in the whole feelings and emotions spectrum. Like, so who's going to track with me this morning and say, man, I'm a feeler? See, there's more feelers in this service than there was in the first service. Praise Jesus. I'm a feeler too. Some of us would say, eh, you know, not, not so much. Like, I'm, not that I don't feel or I have emotions, but, you know, I don't feel them as deeply. Uh, last night, we were, uh, we were watching a movie, it was like a decade old, on... Uh, on Dr. Ben Carson, the neurosurgeon, some of the things that he, he did and performed like for these kids. It's just an astonishing story. It was just an amazing story. L- loved his story. And um, man, it, I'm a feeler. So I'm sitting on the couch over here and Jen's on the other, the other end. And like I'm feeling the weight in my soul of these parents who are going through this agony, right? And this, this happened like when he started his career, we're talking about in the in the late 70s to early 80s. And so I'm trying to keep it together, you know, and a little bit of tears running down my face and I'm trying to wipe away because I don't want Jen to see that, you know, I'm this deep feeler and all this kind of, not that she doesn't know that, but. Man, in the midst of that, as we feel, sometimes what is actually true is more a response to the way that we feel in the moment. And I don't know where you're being lied to right now in your emotions, but I told you that story so that what we don't do is dismiss our emotions as all bad. Don't do that. God made you with emotions. I'm thankful I have emotions. But if they're dictating what's true, and if it's ever true contrary to what God has said about you in the word, then they are lying to you. Got to be anchored in truth. See, ultimately, we can be in a place where we just confess God with our mouths, but we live like we don't believe. What's the lie? The lie for us, my friends, is that God can't be trusted with what I feel, but what I feel can. Be aware of that. So what does Jesus say? Well, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So I hope that as we've walked through today and that you're understanding maybe, maybe for the first time or more deeply that the heart represents the mind, emotions, and will, that this verse has even greater impact because where it is that we trust, we trust the Lord with our heart, before it's ever lived out physically. And how? 
by not leaning on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him. In other words, look to him who is true, who is faithful, who does not change. All of the attributes of God. Now, I am a why guy. So I ask, why can I believe that? And you go to one of my favorite parts of the Bible, which is Colossians chapter 1. And in verse 17, Paul writes, talking about Jesus when he says, now this is the why. This is why you can trust. It's because he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And everything is held together by Jesus. Jesus, who spoke all of creation into existence, is the same Jesus that is holding all of your circumstances. So what is it that you're in the middle of right now that your mind is deceiving you or your feelings are telling you something that's not true that ultimately you believe that Jesus does not hold it all together? See, that's a qualifying question that helps us to be able to to understand where it is that we might be deceived by the enemy in our hearts because when we are deceived, then we will live out unrighteous not righteously. The battle is a battle for trust. I don't know if we, like, we use that word a lot in church, but here's the, here's the deal. When you're battling your heart, and you're battling for who do I trust? Last thing, and we're going to be done. It protects my, what I do. It protects my will. My volitional actions. I'm not sure about you, but I think we can all agree, right? To struggle to obey is nothing new. Like, it's hard sometimes, but often it's more related to our desire than our ability. Here's why I think that's true. Because what we do is tied to who we love. See, the gospel is not about behavior modification. It's not about pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just do better and be better and make it skidding into eternity. If that's the gospel that you're living out, I'm going to guess that you're living overwhelmed and frustrated, anxious at times. And yet, So often we live as though it's what we do that actually is going to make Jesus love us. Charles Spurgeon, called the Prince of Preachers, says it this way, love is a practical thing. Love without obedience is mere pretense. True love shows itself by seeking to please the one who is loved. So how is it that our desires then can deceive or distract or discourage or divide us? Well, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So when we are unconvinced of Jesus' love for us, then obedience is a duty, not a delight. And when you find yourself in that posture, in that moment, you're going, man, I'm just trying to self-will my, my, my way through this thing. But it is so utterly hard. I want you just to ask the questions, what has captured my heart? Where are my affections right now? 
Because we're going to have our affections in one of two places. And that's where the battle occurs. Our affections for Jesus or our affections for ourselves. And as we go through life, you'll see that those things ebb and flows at different times, right? Man, we're always fighting for ourselves. That's the, the innate nature of sin. Where I'm always looking to myself, and yet Jesus calls us. Man, Trust him in such a way that we begin to believe his love for us changes. I want you to just consider some things with me. That every battle we face in our heart is really a battle to believe and trust the love that Jesus has for us. Every struggle that you're in the midst of, every disappointment, every heartache, all of those things that produce opportunities to obey or disobey really raises the bigger question, who do I love? So every decision that you make, every way that obedience is played out or disobedience plays out is really a decision in your heart in that moment that says, I love Jesus or I love me. So put it on the ground. Because I want to end kind of where we began. You know, I talked about imputed righteousness and practical righteousness. So let me just draw our attention back to that. Imputed righteousness, what we have in Christ. Practical righteousness, how it is that we live out what we have in Jesus. I want you to understand that that the doctrine of imputed righteousness is not some cold-hearted doctrine that is just... It's just meant to be discussed in the halls of seminary. It is actually an outflow of Jesus' love for us. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, he puts it this way. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, did what? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You didn't do anything to earn the grace that God has given you. Nothing. Because that's true, that as a follower of Jesus, God who is rich in his mercy for you, who lavished you with his grace, who poured out his love on you, while you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, by making us alive, produces in us an affection of the heart that changes the way that we now live. That's why the more that we believe that God's love is for us, the more that we will desire to do his will. It's why I don't need to give you a list of to-dos and all the ways that you could do better and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. No, Mary Beth, I want to I encourage us, right, to have our affections stirred a little bit more for Jesus. Richard, like, I want Jesus to stir our affections for him because now we'll obey differently. That's what that looks like. But the lie that we believe is that Jesus' love isn't enough. And yet, at Salem Chapel, we talk a whole lot about abide, don't we? I hope you're hearing that word a lot. We couldn't put it any bigger along that wall if we tried because it's the key. John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Why? Because as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he says, I, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
It's he that bears much fruit. You see what Jesus is saying there? As you abide in his love, that produces the fruit of the life that we now live. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do you in all your moralism apart from Jesus. But as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I want our posture in this place to have our affections stirred for Jesus because of what he has given us now produces this breastplate of righteousness, this protection that lives out obedience because there is no safer place that we can be. So as the band sings and as we worship together, I felt like in both of these services today, I did not have this plan, but I, I want to make a call to us that maybe as we've gone through today, there are some ways that you've been deceived in your thinking or your emotions are wrecking havoc in you and you've experienced sorrow or you're angry or we could go down the list. Or maybe just say, man, Aaron, yeah, I don't have my affection stirred for Jesus. So some of us, we're just going to sing collectively together, but myself and I think that, you know, Mark and Phil will be able to come in and got Lori down here and my wife about halfway back. Like, if you just want us to pray for you, instead of singing that, like, we want to do that, okay? And so, however the Spirit prompts in this moment, you, you just respond in that way. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for how your truth changes us. Thank you for Jesus. And may our affections be stirred in greater ways for you. That we would bring our lives into alignment with the truth that is God's word. Father, be with us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.